Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode bit of politics for you. It's 30 years since Black Wednesday. Norman Lamont, the Chancellor on that fateful day, tells me why it's not that big a deal, basically. Uh, before that, we will speak to our columnist panel as ever, uh, Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Before that, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned the sad news that everyone booked into centre parks next week will have to stay there after the company you turned on the idea of kicking them all out on Monday. Uh, we learned that Liz Trust doesn't like people in the Treasury who say her figures don't add up. That is a disgrace. Uh, we learned that Lindsay Hoyle thinks the long conference recess should be cut. But I do believe that they could well be cut short and I don't want to hold anybody to ransom by saying I may have misled, misled people. But that would be my personal expectation. Not fight, but expectation and hope, may I add. We learned that this week David Aronovich has been feeling left out. Everybody else in Britain appears to have met the Queen and to have something to say about it and had to have said it on one outlet or another. Uh, and I'm feeling very, very left out. We learned that Mariella likes it full fat. No, no, you definitely don't want a low-fat sausage. Uh, talking of which, we learned that Anne Summers, Domino's Pizza and Funky Pigeon were all sad about the Queen. Uh, we learned what happened when the day on the day that David Blunkett joined the Privy Council. You have to move across the room and kneel on the cushion. And I left my, my dog with Jack Straw. And I, I went across the room and I, I hit the cushion OK because uh, we practised the number of steps. But I wasn't facing the right way. I was facing away from the Queen. She said to me afterwards, I, I, I was quite worried that you were going to actually miss the cushion completely, and then what would I have done? We learned that the King needs to get a new stationer. And we learned there's really no limit to how long British people will queue. Uh, we learned that we're an utterly bonkers country, but actually that's probably just fine. Now on the Redbox podcast, it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, yeah, so we got to Friday and our favourite columnists on a Friday morning are, of course, Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. And James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm not bad at all. Uh, right. Uh, are either of you queuers, planning to queue? No people are queuing. I mean, it's the most British 
There is now, somebody was just tweeting a photo, there is now a queue of people waiting to join the queue when the queue reopens. It's the most <laughs> British thing ever, Melanie. It is absolutely wonderful. I love it. It is, and, and, and the, you know, the, the, it's very sweet. There's something, there's something really kind of quiet and understated and, and there's a sort of, there's, it's all about order and courtesy and humour, isn't it? I mean, and, and an underlying decency. I mean, being serious is a kind of underlying decency, which is very much about Britain. And if you've ever been in a sort of a queue or a, or, 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 or a non-queue abroad and you've seen how, how beastly foreigners behave when, when you know, they, they have to, to get somewhere and there's a rush to get somewhere and it's first person comes first, you know, you get trampled underfoot by crazed, horrible, um, <laughs> uh, you know, a, 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 a sort of a Darwinian rush, whereas in Britain that doesn't happen. And I just think it's very, very nice, very nice. Uh, what's your take on it, James? Are you a queuer? Um, it is remarkable. I was, I was looking at the queue this morning as I was walking to work, uh, and it was on the other side of the Thames from me. Uh, and and, and it, 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 there is something remarkable about the kind of spontaneous order of it. And and it's very strange because it, it, it's a... It's a um, it's a kind of subdued queue, if you sort of mean. You normally think that that, that, that many people on, on the other, are, you you would hear lots of noise or something, but it's not. And I think there is, but but it's also you can see, it's also uh, a very friendly queue, and that you know that you wouldn't naturally associate talking to strangers with with, with Britons or, or Londoners, but you know, but but everyone everyone is. It is it is a remarkably, uh, and I think in some ways there is something, and I think this is the benefit of a of a head of state above. Of politics in that that, that that it is a it is just a she the queen did serve as this unifying figure for the country and she's proving to be that in death as well as in life can, it, can i can i just there's one tiny one tiny erudite quirky thing that i got from one of our the the, the readers on i love times the times readers comments it can be wonderful this lovely erudite, erudite line that the, the actual word q is such a superb word the first letter does all the work, and then all, all, all the other four letters silently fall into line behind it. Beautiful. That is beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah. It's, oh, it's amazing. And um, I, there's something about as well, I think you're right, James, the fact that it's so sort of quiet and ordered, but also people are having fun quietly in respect. You know, it is possible. I mean, it's a sort of British thing, I think, the sort of, because the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, said this week that, you know, grief is a mixture of tears and laughter. And, um, you know, it's it, lots of people have been saying that, you know, there's this sort of weird, it's not a, quite a party atmosphere, more sort of, you know, village fate atmosphere in the queue and people are making friends and passing the time and all of that um for what is an incredibly sombre thing at the end of it but it's a very but people aren't sort of you know standing in silence for the whole queue it's a very sort of yeah it's just a, it feels very british or maybe that's just a nonsense and that other countries would do the same but i don't know it's um, no it wouldn't no no <laughs> <laughs> ne neither of you attempted I mean it's got a long way for you to come but neither of you attempted to join the queue uh, no, well yeah yeah, I couldn't make it but you know, James has no excuse <laughs> you could have done this this morning if you'd, if you'd got up it, it, it gone down there at midnight James you could be in the queue now and reporting live for us 
I, I could have indeed, but you didn't email me in time, Jeff. I, I felt that I felt I felt I feel that Tom Whipple has taken one for the team. I think Tom, 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 no one can quite top Tom. Although, of course, Tom Whipple, everyone joked about him being sent down in it, but I mean, he, he was only there for what? Well, he was there overnight, wasn't he? But actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, we should be careful before. And it, and it did rain, <laughs> which it hasn't done since. So yeah, we'll let him off. We'll let him off. Um. Uh, Manny, let's talk about naming things um, because uh, <laughs> France's most British airport is going to be named after the Queen. The Channel Resort of Le Touquet uh, is is apparently going to uh, name its historic airport after the Queen. It turns out they like us after all. Yeah, I think this is a huge gesture of bonhomie. They, 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 um, they, they, uh, Le Touquet has, has released a statement saying they're going to call her, they're going to rename the, the airport, you know, because in honor of our queen, because she spoke French and she appreciated our country and she came here very often. And of course, Lutuque was, you know, the kind of Edwardian outpost of Britishness. So tens of thousands of, of, of Brits used to go there on holiday. Um, <coughs> but it's, it's um, what I think is, it's, it's lovely for the sort of political implications of, 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 of a peace offering. But I also love it because um, it, it's very much what the Queen would have enjoyed. You know that uh, there's, there's a fabulous anecdote in Tina Brown's uh, book on royalty, which I reviewed, and in which one of her courtiers told, um, uh, told, told Tina Brown that the Queen would go through in her private office when all the invitations came in, and there was the, the courtiers had already put the sort of the, the ones they discarded into the out tray, um, and uh, the Queen would come in and riffle through the out tray. Um, because she was always looking for invitations to open um, infrastructure and bridges and tunnels. She absolutely loved opening things like that. And she loved transport infrastructure. I mean, look at the way she turned out when she was obviously very, very frail. And she turned out to open the Elizabeth line uh, in London, the the, the tube. Um, Just because she just loved doing it. I think very sweet. I suppose it's also a recognition, James, that those big things tend to last a bit longer than, you know, a new wing of a hospice or, a, or a, you know, the pulling, the pulling back the, the, the curtains on the council, you know, reception or whatever it might be. You know, great big things, particularly if they're, you know, if you turn up and pull the ribbon, they, they name it after you as well. They, she knows that all of those things, bridges and buildings and uh, um, tube lines, will, will live on long after Yes, in, indeed, and, and they will for a long time. I've I've always had uh, mixed feelings about um, naming airports after people because I, I I think when you know I remember when William Hague suggested naming Heathrow, renaming Heathrow the Diana Princess of Wales Airport. I always think you slightly associate you know JFK in New York doesn't make you think of the US president; it makes you think of your long flight delay. Um, but I, but I think I think there is a kind of I think you are. I, mean, I think you, are, you, you and Melanie are, are, are right, Matt. That that, that that it is these kind of permanent, lasting pieces of infrastructure. You know, and obviously, you know, if the Elizabeth Line will be the Elizabeth Line. You know, I mean, it'll still be working a hundred years from now. And I think there there is something about that. that these kind of uh, these things, and also the the, the 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 infrastructure is that kind of necessary and unfussy, which in, in many ways kind of sums up the Queen. Mm-hmm. I think. Very yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. Uh, let's move away. Let's move away from uh, matters well for a moment, Jane. Talk about your columns today, because uh, were it not for um, th- for understandable reasons, the news being completely dominated uh, by the death of the Queen, lots of things have happened this week. There would have been lots of politics, but also Mark Rowley starting as the head of the Metropolitan Police 
We never mind the policing uh, uh, challenge over the next few days. He's got an in-tray which probably competes with Liz Trusses in terms of what he needs to try and sort out. Yeah, and you've seen the news this morning that that, that two uh, police officers uh, were stabbed um, in Soho this morning. You know uh, the scale of the challenge. I think the I think the the, the the challenge for him is that morale within the Metropolitan Police is very low. Uh, at the same time, public confidence in the police is falling. Um, it's now less than fifty percent of Londoners now think the police do it do a good job, uh, and um, recorded crime in England and Wales is at a twenty year high. And so, how do you solve this problem? I mean, the, I mean, the biggest thing he can do is to to go back to local policing in London. Um, you know, there's been a kind of an eighteen point decline in the last five years in, in public confidence in the police, and that coincides with this move away. It used to be until twenty eighteen. But, you know, every borough in London had a chief superintendent and he was in charge of policing that borough. They then moved to these much bigger areas, you know, you know, three or four boroughs. You know, one of them is one of these police command areas is, is bigger than Liverpool. Another has almost a million people. in it. And I think the problem with that is, you know, London is it, is it means that you end up with policing that stops worrying about the things that local people worry about most, doesn't worry about antisocial behaviour and all the other kind of minor crimes in inverted commas, which, which make people's lives miserable. And so you then get that decline in confidence in the police. And then I think I think that contributes to a decline in, 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 in the police not feeling that they're supported. And it, it, it all becomes a vicious circle. I think if you move back to, to that borough model of policing uh, and put much more of an emphasis on local policing, he would, that would be the most effective way of both cutting crime and restoring public confidence. And the other thing I think he needs to do is, is to find a way to root out the bad apples in the force. I mean, part of the problem is that the, 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 the statutory um, instruments that control the you know, police regulations are treat police disciplinary procedures like a court case, which is, uh, you know, which is excessive. And the other problem is that once a policeman has been vetted, they're basically not vetted again. And I think you should start kind of randomly re-vetting people. And that, that I think, would prevent things like Charing Cross. And actually, re-vetting re- might be better than getting them to retake their oath, uh, which is one of the things that came out this week. It seemed to be one of his first first pronouncements. Um, Melanie, what, what do you make of this? I mean, it's clearly... I mean, it is London's police force, but they're responsible for lots of things uh, which happen nationally, and it is by far the biggest. It, it's it's massive. I think revetting is a very good idea. Just just as people have to to get revetted if they work with vulnerable people, um, you know, ordinary in other jobs, nurses and care workers and things, police should be revetted too. Yeah, um, but I, policing is is it's like the NHS and housing. All these things, these massive things, the problem the, the government problem has, uh, they are. It's all about underinvestment. Years of underinvestment in the police. And um, I, I personally, I, I hell of a lot of time for the police force. I think they do a, fa- a, fa- a fantastic job, and we take so much for granted. Um, you know, think about the stress and the pressure they're under at the moment with with these the the, the, the all the, the the people walking through the, the celebrities and dignitaries in 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 London. I mean, it, you know, you cannot you cannot underestimate the scale of security needed. And how you the, the people running it will take a huge deep breath at the beginning of the funeral or the the, the walk along the mile, the mile and and at the end of it they will they will only then will they sigh, they they breathe out in relief everybody is safe yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 an extraordinary burden we put in the police and and they're terribly easy to knock them for what they do 
Yeah, and I suppose it's 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 difficult because we want them to keep everyone safe, but then equally, you know, lots of the stories I've heard coming out of Charing Cross and so on that James was talking about, you know, the two <laughs> keeping everyone safe doesn't mean that they can't also uh, behave better privately. But yeah, it's yeah. difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. It's a huge changing a culture of anything is going to be really difficult. Listen, I think one of the things that sorry, go on, James. No, no, I just was going to say quickly. I think mean, one of the things we don't appreciate is that police officers from all, very quickly are put into, in, into situations where they have to make the use their own judgment and make and make big calls. You know, do, do you know what do you do about this incident over there? And and, and I think we, we we offer the police remarkably little training for doing that you know i mean someone was pointing out to me that you know it, to become a corporal in the army you're offered courses in leadership we're not doing the same for the police and yeah. i mean the, the, the police training needs to to, to 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 shift to reflect the fact that we are the, the things that we are expecting them to do and i think also as with so many of these things you know this this since 2018 the met has been pursuing this English strategic center and i think that is taking away the the ability of officers to make their own judgment calls and when you when you when you do that to people, you 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 reduce their how invested they feel in their own job because you know they're they're they're, they're doing a tick box rather than using their own judgment. I think mean, you know I think better leadership is one of the absolute keys to this. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth. Then, of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we remember Black Wednesday. 
He stood outside the Treasury and made this announcement that evening. Today has been an extremely difficult and turbulent day. Massive speculative flows continue to disrupt the functioning exchange rate mechanism. As chairman of the Council of European Finance Ministers, I have called a meeting of the Monetary Committee in Brussels urgently tonight to consider how stability can be restored to the foreign exchange markets. In the meantime, the government has concluded that Britain's best interests are served by suspending our membership of the exchange rate mechanism. As a result, the second of the two interest rate increases that I sanctioned today will not take place tomorrow, and minimum lending rate will be at 12% until conditions become calmer. I will be reporting to Cabinet, discussing the situation with colleagues tomorrow, and may make further statements then. But until then, I have nothing further to say. Uh, that was Norman Lamont in 1992, uh, announcing that interest rates would only be 12% instead of rising to 15%. Not that he was necessarily unhappy about leaving the ERM. Uh, about a month later, he was asked why he was so cheerful, and he said, my wife said she heard me singing in the bath this morning. Uh, yeah, singing in the bath then became an example of uh, a politician who perhaps was uh, co for saying he was cheerful despite uh, everyone else thinking that something was bad. Well, the effects of that momentous 24 hours uh, live on two decades later. But Norman Lamont still thinks it was the right decision. I caught up with him and started by asking him what he remembers from that day. I'm afraid I remember more the arguments round about it. And I, you know, I don't reflect on it very often, but I actually think there are a lot of misperceptions about the uh, the event and why it happened and what its significance was. But perhaps not surprisingly, my view is rather different from the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, take me through it then for listeners who, who maybe have the wrong perception or actually some might not um, uh, recall it. What was Black Wednesday? How did it come about? And why, why do you think it happened? Black Wednesday, so-called, or White Wednesday, according to others, was the day in which Britain left a fixed exchange rate system called the ERM, by which the pound external value was linked to European currencies. The reason the British government joined was that there was a great public clamour for it. But actually, it didn't work quite as intended because... German reunification took place. The two parts of Germany, communist and West Germany, were united. And this led to a great boom, and it led to inflation taking off. And you had different conditions in Germany from the rest of Europe. And this caused enormous tensions because Germany needed higher interest rates because there was inflation there. And Britain and the rest of Europe needed... Uh, lower interest rates. This was what the fundamental problem was, and that was what led up to the breakup of the ERM. I use the words breakup because people always say Britain left the ERM, but they completely forget that something like eight countries devalued or left the ERM on on the same week as as we did. We weren't the only only country. It was really the disintegration of a, a system. As regards the significance of the event, it was politically very difficult for the government, um, very difficult for myself and the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister particularly, John Major, as he was the architect of the policy and had taken us in. But it, it was 
very, very embarrassing for me too, because this wasn't how it was meant to end. But the results of it were economically beneficial in some ways, because uh, we were able to cut interest rates and we were able to come out of recession. Now, all that may make it sound, and this is where I personally think there's a huge misperception. People think that the ERM caused the recession. We would have had a recession whether we were in the ERM or not, um, because inflation was very high. We needed high interest rates. The day I became Chancellor Exchequer, inflation was 11% nearly. When I left, two months after I, oh no, the month I left, it was about 2%. So it was very successful in getting inflation down. And that created the conditions for a great expansion of the economy, which went on through the administration of Brown and Blair. Of course, um, yeah. one thing we should reflect on uh, is the, the, the these days, of course, the interest rates are set by the Bank of England. Uh, back, that, back then, when you were Chancellor, you as Chancellor set the interest rates. Uh, and yeah, so I suppose that's... people people thinking about their mortgages in terms of the political impact, you know, it was you and the uh, John Major and the Conservative government who were putting up their mortgages, not the Bank of England. No, that, that's absolutely uh, right. The, and, of course, interest rates were at a far higher level. Because inflation was nearly 11%, interest rates the day I became Chancellor were already 14%. Uh, and although the entire two and a half years when I was Chancellor, I never did anything except on Black Wednesday uh, other than cut interest rates, uh, the public perception was that I was the man who kept interest rates very high. But actually, they came down the whole whole of that um, time. It was only on the actual day of Britain's exit from the ERM that in an emergency move that lasted 24 hours, we put interest rates up to 125 and 15% and then reversed it the next day. But yes, you're right. There was this perception that it was the government uh, controlling interest rates. Well, it was the government controlling interest rates, but interest rates had to be high because inflation was very high. I wondered is when I was thinking about uh, this, I mean, it's also the extraordinary day and uh, accounts of the various meetings and decisions you're making all the time. I thought, blimey, at least there wasn't social media uh, and rolling news. It, it, the, 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 what, it was clearly a, a series of dramatic events and dramatic decisions being made. You, you must be glad that you didn't have people constantly tweeting your every uh, sort of move of your eyebrows and over-interpreting uh, over it. Well, I suppose you might think that, but uh, actually I don't think I'd have had time to be thinking <laughs> about social media on the day. And there was plenty of very fast-moving commentary going on in the foreign exchange markets in the city, minute by minute, and people being astonished, minute by minute, what was happening. So although the point you make about social media might be right in a general sense, I don't think actually it would have made a lot of difference. We were all stuck behind our desk in Admiralty House trying to work out what we could do, um, having to act very quickly, and we decided the best thing to do after meeting various cabinet ministers, was to withdraw from the ERM. But as I say, withdraw is a funny way of putting it because basically <laughs> the system disintegrated. The whole thing collapsed sort of around you. And you you came to that decision uh, more quickly than John Major. It, it took him a bit longer to, to realise that the game was up. 
Well, that that's right. But of course, John Major, as prime minister, had to look at it in a wider context than I. I was just looking at it from the point of view of the Treasury, the cost to the foreign exchange reserves of continuing to bleed uh, resources from our reserves minute by minute. He had to think in terms of the political reversal, what members of the government would think, what the public would think. And after all, this had been a momentous decision that he personally was responsible for to join the ERM. To leave it was a big reversal for him. And, you know, I'm not surprised he wanted to consult other colleagues. And other colleagues who came were somewhat reluctant to accept what I think was the reality. And uh, at that moment, what was it, 20 to 8 on uh, what we now call Black Wednesday, you appeared outside the Treasury, announced... Britain leaving the ERM, uh, standing next to you, young chap called David Cameron. Uh, how big an impact do you think this this episode had on on him and his approach then to to economics? Well, I think it probably had quite a big impact on uh, David Cameron. He was a very good special advisor to me. He, he wasn't really, of course, at the heart of the decision making on this that was restricted to a few very senior people he was a young man at the time he did brilliantly working for me um but you know his fingerprints are not really on <laughs> this decision and what happened um I, I think it showed him how quickly things can change in politics uh, how you have to make uh, quick decisions deal with uh, crises of this kind i think it also made him quite wary of cooperation with the European Union. I mean, I'm not saying that David Cameron ever came to the point of wanting to leave the EU. Obviously, he didn't. But I think he was quite cautious about European integration. One of the consequences of the ERM episode was that public opinion, I mean, this in some ways might have been one of the biggest consequences, is that public opinion became very firmly against joining the euro because they saw the problems of the ERM, the tension between what was wanted in Germany and what was wanted in Britain and other countries in Europe, they saw that as what would happen within the euro, which would be dominated by the needs of Germany again. I'm not making an anti-German point, let me say. It's just the tensions within yeah. in the system. And I think a very important consequence of September the 16th, 1992, was to make the British public very cautious about the idea of joining the euro, which Tony Blair in opposition and in government wanted to do. Uh, and just reflecting today, I mean, clearly we are in different times. It, we, we are seeing high inflation. Uh, there's been these days, because Gordon Brown made the Bank of England uh, independent, that decision on interest rates lies with the Bank of England and not with your successors as, as Chancellor. Do you... Do you agree with those who say that the, the Bank of England has been too slow to hike interest rates this time around? Do you think Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor, has a point in criticising the Bank of England's response to the, the rise in, in inflation? I do think the Bank of England was a bit slow in putting up interest rates. I myself uh, called for a rise in interest rates last year. But I think it's very easy to criticise. And I don't think it would have made a huge amount of difference, even if interest rates had gone up. I think they should have gone up. But it wouldn't have made a lot of difference because an element, a large element, obviously, in this inflation is imported from abroad, abroad from increased energy prices. And putting up interest rates wouldn't quickly have altered that. But I think the bank 
work uh, was a bit slow. But I don't think people should interfere with the independence of the Bank of England. Better them making mistakes than politicians making even worse mistakes. <laughs> Just finally, Norman Lamonts, uh, do you still sing in the bath? You famously said <laughs> so, <laughs> in the days after, in the days after uh, uh, Black Wednesday, you said my wife said she'd never heard me sing in the bath until last week. You still singing in the bath? <laughs> well, I sometimes sing in the, the, the bath, but it wasn't strictly as you related. <laughs> but the press, as always, when it gets something half right, it perceived <laughs> that I didn't see this. When I that I didn't see this as a total disaster, I felt that we'd benefited from being in the year. I mean, this is where I differ from conventional opinion now. I still think we benefited from being in the RM. We got inflation down drastically, but we were lucky that we got out because the medicine we, we'd had enough, enough of the medicine, the tool, if you like, broke in our hands. Norman Lamont, there, uh, the Chancellor on Black Wednesday. So we're remembering 30 years since Black Wednesday on this day in 1992. Britain left the ERM. Inflation rates were cranked up. And actually, the, the political impact was probably long-term just as great as the uh, economic. So let's speak to two titans of political journalism at the time, and still today. Uh, joining me in the studio, uh, former political editor of The Sun, Trevor Cameron is here. Morning, Trevor. Good morning. And political editor of The Times at the time, Phil Webster. Hi, Phil. Good morning, Mac. Good morning, Trevor. Good no, morning. Nice to have you both uh, join me. Um, uh, Trevor, you, first of all, uh, do you think that's, I mean, maybe it's because I was quite, I do remember it at the time, well, I was about 10, but I remember it was like a big, there was all of it on the news, uh, the ERM was a thing, and this all seemed quite bad. Do you think that actually long term the, the political impact was greater than the economic one? Uh, yes, you're making me feel very old, I'm Matt. Sorry, <coughs> I remember it as if it was yesterday. I'm sure <laughs> Phil does too. I remember our front page the uh, next day on the 17th was uh, a picture of Norman Lamont and uh, the headline was, we, now we've all been screwed by the cabinet. Because <laughs> um, there was a lot of that going on in those days. In the there night. was a yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but do you think that do you think that was because I mean the point that Norman Lamont was making was that actually it was probably the right thing to do to leave the ERM and actually the period between 1992 and then when they lost the election in 95 was was one of pretty strong economic growth. Well, it was, and I mean there are many people who disagree with him. Although <clears throat> on most things I agree with uh, Norman Lamont. Um, the, for instance, Professor Sir Alan Walters described the RM as uh, half-baked, and frankly, it was and remains in its present form as the euro. Uh, it's a, it's a, a hodgepodge system trying to <coughs> keep together all these disparate economies under one currency, and it simply won't work, and it isn't working now. It couldn't work then, and it collapsed, and we were thrown out mercifully because from then uh, the decisions we could make on our own triggered 30 years of unbroken economic growth. Uh, Phil, what are your memories of that time and your <clears throat> your assessment of the political and economic impact? The day was incredibly chaotic. It was great to be a, a political journalist at the time because it, the story was changing by the, by the minute, really. And the, the chaos was increased by the fact that uh, the IRA had attacked Downing Street with a mortar attack just beforehand, and Downing Street had effectively moved to Admiralty Arch. So it's very hard to get hold of the people we wanted in Downing Street. And you didn't really know whether to be talking to Downing Street or the Treasury, because uh, it seemed like the, uh, the decisions were coming out of, uh, out of uh, 
number 10 or the Admiralty Arch at the time. Now, in terms of what it all meant, I would say that it was a really bad day for the Tory party. It kept them out of power for a long, long time. It was a great day for the currency speculators, notably <laughs> George Soros, who broke the bank to the tune of a billion, which is the amount he admitted to. But it wasn't a bad day at all for the country because the country then went into a, a period fairly soon after with a new system of, of targeting inflation. Um, very soon the country was on the road to growth again. The Labour Party was helped by that in 1997. I think, the as, as Norman Lamont said, Euroscepticism increased in the country. It's hard to believe now that the Tory party won the 92 election on a very pro-European agenda, an agenda that refused to rule out going into the single currency. And I think finally, in the end, the ERM debacle did mean that Britain would never go into the euro. And uh, I know that Trevor uh, and uh, and a lot of other people are extremely happy about that, and uh, and I don't think many people would want to go into the euro today. Well, Gordon, Gordon Brown was another one who was very. You know, he not only inherited the uh, the, the the growing economy in 1997, but he was, I think, unconvinced is probably one way of putting it about the merits of the of going to the euro. Tour. Well, he and Ed Balls, who was yeah. basically his uh, minder on the treasury. <clears throat> spelled out uh, their plans. They had five rules to stop us going in, and basically they were never going to be met. So under Gordon Brown, uh, he saved us from that uh, crisis. But I just going back to what Phil was saying, um, that, that uh, period during the when they were in, in the Admiralty Arch building, they were completely cut off from the normal information stream from Downing Street staff, and they were hunting around desperately to find out what's happening on the money markets. And someone brought them a transistor radio, and they gathered around the radio, <laughs> Hesseltine, Clark, and uh, John Major. Amazing. I, mean, I suppose, because I was, I, I was being slightly facetious talking to Norman about the idea that it had all that played out against a backdrop of, we'd have all gone mad if it, if it had all been played out on Twitter, you know, watching the markets, and knowing actually, the, it's weird, isn't it? Because the mar political people treat the markets as some sort of gospel, you know, the pound is down, or, the, or you know, the... Um, but they're just they're just normal human beings sitting across the river from us, looking at Twitter the same as everyone else. Well, they were blessed that they didn't have uh, social media. You're absolutely <laughs> right. But uh, the, you know the panic that was going on. We were in touch, and Phil would have been in touch with people on these uh, the stock exchange floor, <clears throat> talking about what was happening literally on their screens before their eyes, and it was just bubbling away at a furious pace. And we were trying to update our stories as we headed for the edition time. And it was changing all the time. Oh. And I was delighted to yeah. hear from one of the brokers that the only paper that was visible on the, shop, on the dealing room floor was the Sun and not the Financial Times, which had been deeply discredited, I have to tell you, by its coverage of Europe and the exchange rate mechanism. It's interesting. Not the, not the Times either. Not, oh, the Times would have been there. Yeah, I'm sure the Times would have been there, not the FT. Not the <laughs> FT. And Phil, what about the politics of today? And it, it's, I mean, it's, you know, you can probably, you can draw comparisons lots of times, but we are in a situation where, uh, you know, politics is going to return in a big way next week. There's the cost of living crisis. There's a, you know, it seems as if Liz Truss has spent something like £100 billion a year on her energy price freeze with no plan for how to pay for it. Um, could the Conservatives find themselves in, not a, not a Black Wednesday in the same sort of economic way, but a, a sort of a big moment that becomes politically damaging for them in the same way? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, I think 
it, it's quite interesting that we're reflecting now on what happened 30 years ago. But in a way, she's Liz Truss is is going for just as big a, a gamble as as going into the ERM was. And where all this money is going to come from, we know, well, it's going to come from borrowing. Um, and in the end, uh, we will pay for it, of course. And I'm not sure that the because of events that have happened elsewhere, I'm not sure that the public has yet taken this on board, that yes, we're going to get relief from very, very extremely high uh, energy bills at Christmas, although they'll still be a lot higher than they were this time last year. But in the end, we do all have to pay for it. And if she doesn't get this right, um, you know, we could have, there could well be a similar outcome for the Tories in 2024 as there was in 1997. I think they all know that they are playing for the highest possible stakes at this moment. Joe, what's your assessment? I think clearly the biggest challenge that Liz Truss has at the next election will be the Conservatives have been in power for 14 years and, and what a lot, lots happened in those 14 years. But making a big economic call on tax cuts and hoping that, that fires up the, the economy to the extent that it some way deals with this borrowing, that's a big, that, as Phil was saying, that's a big gamble. Oh, it's a huge gamble and they know this. Um, I think there are various ways in which you approach this sort of problem. <clears throat> but you have to make a decision on which way you're going to go. They certainly have to throw a wall of money to protect the most vulnerable in society, and that costs. And uh, We're in dire straits, and as the song goes, there's no such thing as money for nothing. Um, and one day it's going to have to be paid back, and uh, the odd thing is that they're hoping that inflation will help to pay it back because the debt that we're owed will gradually diminish as time passes. But... I mean, we're talking about possibly £200 billion pounds yeah. here. It's not, and it's on top of what's been spent already on COVID. So we don't know what on earth faces this country. And if we don't get the growth they're promising, we'll deal with the problem. What is the solution? There isn't one. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, 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 uh, well maybe we'll find out next week with Kwasi Kwarteng's much-promised fiscal event. Uh, Trevor Kavanagh, former political editor of The Sun, now a columnist of The Sun, of course, and uh, Phil Webster, former political editor of The Times. Really, really appreciate your time today. Uh, yeah, really interesting, that. Turns out that's why some people call Black Wednesday White Wednesday, because maybe it all worked out all right in the end. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>